Melody. Melody. You are listening to the Cannabis Consult Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Jamie Caroon. This podcast takes an in-depth look into the rich and rapidly evolving field of medical cannabis. Each episode features an interview with a figure who is seeking to legitimize the use of this plant as medicine and make a difference in patients' lives. All feedback is welcome. Email jamie at centerformedicalcannabis.com. Thanks for your time. Jersey, big up, big up. Yeah. My guest in this episode is Michelle Sexton. Dr. Sexton is a naturopathic doctor and clinical researcher at UCSD. That's the University of California at San Diego. Dr. Sexton has presented her research internationally and published in several peer-reviewed journals. Her clinical practice, research, and teaching focus is on the endocannabinoid system and how to modulate that system to promote health and treat disease. I have broken up our conversation into two parts or two podcasts. In part one, we discuss the endocannabinoid system and immunity. And in part two, we discuss the endocannabinoid system and female reproduction with a focus on medical cannabis and women's health conditions. This is part two of our conversation. So the other topic I wanted to talk to you about was cannabis and women's health. And I know this is a a particular area of expertise for you. And it's often said in cannabis lore that Queen Victoria was treated by her personal physician with cannabis tinctures for her painful menstrual periods. So when thinking about women's health, what type of health conditions do you think are appropriate for using medical cannabis? Um, Well, I would like to keep the discussion uh, to therapeutic use of cannabis um, beyond reproduction. My, My personal opinion is that I don't think cannabis is compatible with pregnancy, pregnancy use. Um, I think it's, it's controversial. And so, um, back in the times when we had no other effective pain relief, you know, it was, I'm sure extremely useful. I don't, we just don't have enough data on women's health and how specifically, you know, women in their inner circles were employing it. Um, they, they were using a lot of other botanical medicines as well. So uh, in this day and time when we have, um, you know, other alternatives for pain relief in labor, uh, we don't actually have great treatments for pregnancy hyperemesis, which actually could be an endocannabinoid deficiency but the role of um, specifically, you know, THC in brain development is is highly uh, it's it's highly speculated, you know, that that it's a modulator of CNS development in the embryo. So that's that's my personal opinion is that I I think no drug in pregnancy is is best. So I like to focus on you know women beyond childbearing and you know how they can employ it for. Like you said, cramps, for instance. You know, if a woman's using birth control, we know that THC um, relaxes smooth muscle tissue. And so menstrual cramping and the pain associated that with that, it can be a really effective treatment and an alternative to, to some other over-the-counter remedies. Um, I'm, I'm very interested. I've 
my part of my history was that I was a midwife before I went to naturopathic medical school. And so my, my course of uh, treating women has sort of followed along with my own aging. You know, I used to care for a lot of childbearing women, and then it became more, you know, just reproductive age. And now I find that my practice is more, you know, women in the perimenopause and menopause, postmenopausal phases of life. And so the the, all the things associated with that change of life, insomnia, anxiety, hot flashes, weight gain, or in later age, weight, age, uh, weight loss, uh, cognitive changes, you know, these are all the things that older women, um, and when I say perimenopause, that can even be women, you know, by age 35 or 40 that are starting to have some of these symptoms and cannabis um, has a potential, you know, to bring some relief. When talking about menstrual cramps and THC perhaps being a spasmolytic or a smooth muscle spasm reducer, uh-huh. uh, is CBD also effective in doing that? Um, I, I don't know of any mechanism by which it would do that, and I don't remember ever seeing data on that. And I don't know. Do you have experience with women telling you that clinically? No, but I, I, I do not think of CBD as being a spasmolytic. I'm not familiar with any data that has shown that, but you can read that from time to time, not necessarily in scientific papers, but on blogs and whatnot. And, you know, the the consumer public is so fascinated with CBD right now, and they want it to do virtually everything. And so it's easy to understand why people might suggest that CBD could be effective in doing so, but I, I'm not familiar with the mechanism and I haven't seen that clinically. And that's why I was asking. Yeah. I'm for pain benefit. I, um, THC is just unmatched. I mean, I've only had patients using CBD tell me that extremely high, um, doses like 500 milligrams of CBD seem to be effective for, you know, chronic neuropathic type pain. Um, you know, so that's really unaffordable for a lot of people. I mean, CBD could, you know, like uh, ibuprofen is really effective for uh, menstrual cramping for a lot of women because it has this anti-prostaglandin effect, you know, and so maybe CBD could have that effect. You know, it's, a, it's, it's considered to be anti-inflammatory through a receptor called GPR-55, but I think the problem is, is that we don't know what the therapeutic dose is for that, you know, and the dosing that people may be getting and, you know, stuff they're buying on the internet or at their grocery store or wherever they're getting CBD, uh, the dosing may not be at what would be a therapeutic level for that compound. Right. I've read that ibuprofen inhibits FA, fatty acid amide hydrolase, which is the enzyme that degrades our internal endocannabinoids that activate CB1 and CB2 receptors. And CBD has a similar mechanism. It also can inhibit that enzyme FA. And so perhaps CBD could act like ibuprofen in that particular way, if only we knew the dose that would be required. Obviously, with ibuprofen, we understand what the dose would be to do that, uh, at least to attain a clinically significant outcome. But as you mentioned, for CBD, we really don't know what we're doing with regard to dosing because this molecule has been prohibited for decades because it was in the marijuana plant, and it was only 
until February, or excuse me, December 2018, that the Farm Bill would, was passed, and these hemp-derived CBD products could now get funding and, and be used in clinical trials. And so hopefully we'll get some of this very important information because maybe we've just been using too low of a dose and concluding perhaps that it wasn't effective for treating cramps. Yeah, that could be true. Um, yeah, we definitely need more research. I, I think if you look at the body of research that's there, you know, what you find is that therapeutic dosing in, you know, clinical trials is quite high. It's not a potent molecule, at least, you know, as we know THC to be, um, that low dose can be very effective. We, we don't see that um, in, you know, either animal studies of CBD, I mean, it's common to see 50 milligrams per kilogram given to animals. What would be an equivalent dose in humans? We know the bioavailability is so low of CBD. So, you know, again, how do, how do we know it's effective or how do we get an effective dose? We need more research, I think. Right. So you mentioned bioavailability, which is the pharmacokinetic term for describing how much of that thing that you put into um, the body that you administered actually ended up in the bloodstream, what you were able to measure in the bloodstream. You said that CBD has very low bioavailability, like maybe 6, 9, 11% of the CBD that you ingest, for example, end up in your bloodstream. What about... Um, suppositories, vaginal suppositories for women's health conditions, or even rectal suppositories. Do you have a sense for the effectiveness of those forms and the bioavailability? Um, there's not, there hasn't been much you know, formal research on that. The, the only study on a suppository form was a, um, a derivative of THC, which was a hemisuccinate molecule. So you know, that data is not going to really apply just to THC. So from my personal experience with patients, and I have to, you know, give the caveat that um, these are typically neuropathic pain type patients. So, you know, maybe not just your, uh, not, not just a healthy female, you know, experiencing menstrual cramping, but with like chronic pelvic pain, vulvodynia, um, I've had a number of patients try the suppositories, and the feedback was that they did not get any benefit. So I think there's a lot of questions around, you know, is this highly lipophilic molecule getting absorbed at all when we administer it vaginally or rectally? Um, is it just going to maybe act locally? If it were going to act locally, you would think that putting it in vaginally might help with chronic pelvic pain or menstrual cramping. Um, but I'm, I'm really only interacting with people that are, you know, mostly sick and not well. So there may be a body of evidence out there, you know, that, that vaginal suppositories are effective for treating menstrual cramps. But I, like I said, I don't see those people clinically. Yeah. Well, there is some data that you referred to, it shows that rectal suppositories, phytocannabinoids, specifically THC, are not absorbed uh, in the form of a rectal suppository. That THC hemisuccinate form that you mentioned, that particular molecule was synthesized in order to increase the bioavailability of THC in a rectal suppository form. So it was 
I believe, I think it, this was done at the University of Mississippi, it was designed to improve upon the bioavailability of naturally occurring THC. Yeah. If that makes sense. I agree with that. It's also interesting that in, in you know, the, the early days of medical cannabis, cancer was a very big condition. And many people at that time were recommending high doses of THC to treat the cancer directly. But the doses were so high that people would be overwhelmingly intoxicated. And so it was often recommended that you should use a rectal suppository because you don't get as high. But the argument seems to be, well, the reason why you're not getting very high is because <laughs> yeah. you're not absorbing yeah, yeah. very much, if any. So it's probably not treating the cancer. Either. Yeah, that would be my supposition. So you've recently put together a a course on women's health and medical cannabis. Is that um, right? Well, the course is really about the endocannabinoid system and its role across the lifespan in um, you know, women during the reproductive years, um, perimenopause and menopause, and, you know, what's going on with the endocannabinoid system in these different reproductive tissues, and not only reproductive tissues, but, you know, for older women, um, estrogen signaling specifically, bone metabolism, uh, you know, other things that women are uh, plagued with include uh, autoimmune disease, you know, at a higher rate than men. Um, migraine at a higher rate than men. Uh, women tend to have more insomnia than men. Um, more weight gain around menopause and after menopause. Um, overactive bladder. You know, these are all uh, things where that we know the endocannabinoid system is functioning. So it's an it's basically an education for women across the lifespan about you know how is this system working in their body. Uh, what about modulating it? What are the ways to modulate it for optimal health? Um, and, you know, including cannabis as one of those things. So that's what the course is about. It's a three-part series, and um, I, I go into a lot more detail on a lot of these things. Is that for the average consumer? Is it for healthcare professionals? Um, it's probably more for consumers, you know, that want to educate themselves further about the impact of cannabis on their health for women specifically. Women are, you know, traditionally understudied for health conditions. That's, that's really changed a lot in the last few decades. Um, and I would say that's true for cannabis as well. You know, a lot of the early literature was mostly all in men. We know that there are differences in, um, you know, responsiveness uh, to cannabis, how people interact with it, whether they're uh, gendered male or female. That's an ongoing, you know, investigation uh, in terms of, for instance, how do women and men respond differently to cannabis for pain? Um, so I think it's important that women understand the system in their body, and I think you know, just in general, our entire population is really curious about cannabis. And I think that, you know, CBD has made people even more comfortable with even just talking about it. Um, I find that my patients, they like to say, I'm using CBD, when actually they may be using a product that may be dominant in CBD, but there's still THC there, you know, providing a therapeutic benefit, but people are more comfortable just saying CBD. Um, but the THC molecule is really the heavy hitter for the endocannabinoid system. 
Where where can people find this course? Um, so I have it on a platform called Teachable. Um, so it's a you know a three part video series, and um, the web address is ECS Doctor. So endocannabinoid system doctor um, at uh, dot teachable dot com. And so if they go there, they'll see the endocannabinoid system education. There is an endocannabinoid system 101 course there for, that's a little bit of a deeper dive, you know, into the endocannabinoid system that um, might be more appropriate for healthcare providers. Um, The cannabis and women's health part one, two, and three are really oriented for, so I've, I've given it in person twice and they were mostly healthcare providers or, um, massage therapists, herbalists, midwives, you know, that want to be able to talk to the people that they're caring for more about this in women's health. So it's, it's not necessarily getting into the nitty-gritty of dosing for all of these specific indications, but just providing that underlying, um, you know, base of information to understand the rationale for using cannabis. And how else can people get in touch with you? Um, well, through my website. So I have a website called, um, it's ecsdoctor.com. So I've, I've really enjoyed, you know, studying the endocannabinoid system and found that it just is such a perfect fit for naturopathic medicine because it's expressed in every tissue in the body and it provides this quick and dirty way to cover uh, multiple systems. So um, there, there are several papers that talk about the endocannabinoid system um, being implicated in processes such as eat, sleep, relax, forget, protect. And so I've used that um, as a construct to do my patient interviews. And it, so it gives me an overview of, of their endocannabinoid system across, you know, in their entire body system so bringing a whole systems together for um you know that's what we do as naturopathic doctors we want to treat the whole person so it it provides an easy way to really get a a quick look at the whole person and what's going on across multiple systems and so that's why it's called the ecs doctor uh, endocannabinoid system doctor and using cannabis as well as you know all the other different effectors that are available that modulate the endocannabinoid system. And so one I just wanted to bring up really quickly is the um, terpene molecule. So terpenes are typically flavor and smell components of of aromatic plants. And beta-caryophyllene is a a sesquiterpenoid. It's It's a larger molecule. So it means it doesn't fly out into the air as easily as some of the lighter weight molecules. So it's, it can be retained longer over time um, in the cannabis plant um, and also maybe in certain preparations and extractions. So that molecule is a dietary cannabinoid. So this was um, first published by uh, a Swiss researcher, Jörg Gerch, that it's a dietary cannabinoid because it binds the cannabinoid 2 receptor. And so we can get this in our diet every day. Um, through black pepper is a good one. So my favorite way to do a black pepper extraction is um, in coconut oil or, you know, whatever oil you like, olive, heat up 
some oil uh, and freshly grind your black pepper into that oil and just do about five minutes of extraction on a low temperature before you add your other vegetables to stir fry. Um, it's in oregano. It's in clove. You know, so we can, we can get these um, endocannabinoid uh, compounds or cannabinoid effector compounds through our diet and in, in multiple ways. Right. That's a great point. So this molecule you're talking about, beta-caryophylline or beta-caryophylline, however you want to pronounce it, is in cannabis, but it's also in other foods like and other spices or herbs like black pepper. And you could potentially modulate your immune system without using cannabis at all. Yeah. Clove, rosemary, hops, oregano, cinnamon. Yeah. And so that, you know, that low level of agonizing the CB2 receptor with these molecules, you know, that don't bind with really high affinity may act to just tone the endocannabinoid system so that it's primed and ready to go, similar to how our immune system gets primed and ready to go for a repeat infection, that we want a healthy uh, endocannabinoid system function. And and doing this with gentle means through other plants is, is a distinct possibility. So Dr. Ethan Russo, who is a very prominent cannabis researcher, uh, he's also a neurologist, he has put forth this idea of clinical endocannabinoid deficiency syndrome as a basically a syndrome which may explain medical conditions like migraines or even PMS or IBS. The endocannabinoid system may be somehow involved in the pathophysiology of these conditions. Do you have do you have a sense for whether that's a real thing and, and whether that's something that we can use as clinicians? Um, I think it probably is a real thing. Um, you know, we call it a, a clinical endocannabinoid deficiency because we don't have any laboratory means to confirm that there's that deficiency. The, the endocannabinoid compounds, primarily, you know, anandamide or AEA and 2-AG or 2-arachidonoglycerol, um, they're, number one, they're expensive and difficult to measure. Um, so there's not a laboratory test for those. And even if there was, uh, it's, it's very unlikely that those are going to be biomarkers for the endocannabinoid system because they're, uh, we don't know what it means to measure them in the periphery. They're probably uh, highly regulated across each individual tissue. So if you could measure it in the tissue, you know, that, that might give you a better indication of what's going on. So, you know, the other way to do that would be to measure the cannabinoid receptor, CB1 and CB2 receptor. But that, again, is a problem because we don't have this highly efficient, you know, um, non-reactive monoclonal antibody for CB2. And then um, there's just not enough data yet to justify, you know, spending money on those laboratory results but I think, you know, eventually, you know, we may get there where, where these supposed deficiencies are something we can measure. And just really quick while we're on that topic, uh, I wanted to talk about um, hyperemesis gravidarum or, you know, morning sickness, as most people, most women understand that. So it's really interesting that... Um, the endocannabinoid system is highly involved in reproduction in the sense that our immune system, you know, is made to reject foreign invaders. And so, you know, when an egg gets fertilized, basically that fertilized egg 
should be sensed as an invader that needs to be eliminated. But what happens in the uterine lining and in the uterine tissue um, is a process of the endocannabinoid system and its role in immunity uh, and what we call tolerogenesis or the, the, the body tolerating things or not, that it appears the, the endocannabinoid system is getting turned down so that the, the fertilized ovum is not rejected as a foreign invader. And so this, um, you know, morning sickness is likely related to that turning down of the, of the endocannabinoid system. Um, and so we, we see this mirrored in, um, you know, this chronic hyperemesis that's, that's being associated with heavy cannabis use. Again, we don't have definitive data showing that the endocannabinoid system's being, you know, suppressed, but, but there's, uh, these two things going on that are very similar, you know, where people are having cyclic vomiting. Um, and we know that there's a role for the endocannabinoid system. There's clearly something there. There's, there seems like there's a lot of noise, but there's probably a signal there as well, because we know that cannabinoids can reduce nausea and vomiting. We know that they can create nausea and vomiting in high doses and chronic use. And what you're saying potentially is that perhaps the nausea and vomiting that's associated with early pregnancy is related to the endocannabinoid system being suppressed, right? Yeah, because that that was confirmed. So there was one study where they just measured anandamide. Um, it was uh, a paper called Anandamide in Pregnancy Maintenance and Labor. And so um, postmenopausal women had almost the lowest levels of anandamide. Um, and then you see uh, at the follicular phase of the menstrual cycle or, you know, when the egg's uh, ripening, getting ready, ready to be released from the ovary, anandamide goes way up. And then it, it drops down and it's nearly down to the levels of the postmenopausal woman. And so this is also these low levels of anandamide um, have also been associated with um, the ability to achieve pregnancy through in vitro fertilization. And so women with high levels of anandamide uh, were less likely to achieve pregnancy. So, you know, again, showing that there's this role of the endocannabinoid system in achieving and maintaining pregnancy, um, the association with hyperemesis gravidarum and chronic um, vomiting syndrome from, um, for some people that maybe either overuse cannabis or very sensitive to THC. But our ability to yet measure this, you know, isn't mature. Right. Man, there is a lot to learn. So just in wrapping up, is there anything else that you wanted to talk about or any comments or questions? Um, I just think that cannabis is a really um, great uh, herb for women um, perimenopausally and postmenopausally. Uh, there's so many different roles um, you know, not only for inflammation, autoimmune disease, uh, I think the impact on insomnia is, is just amazing. Uh, and women having poor sleep quality, difficulty falling or staying asleep, uh, women are twice as likely to report that as men, whereas 60% of, of peri- and postmenopausal women are reporting sleep problems. And we know that, you know, maintaining our circadian rhythm is just so important for uh, immunity and affecting, um, you know, cardiac health, uh, 
rheumatoid arthritis, osteoarthritis, um, and other things across the lifespan. So uh, the effects on sleep. There's also, you know, as, as women lose estrogen, um, there's cognitive effects. And, you know, we're facing an epidemic, 50 million people globally being diagnosed with dementia. Two-thirds of these diagnoses are women. Uh, there, you know, in addition to genetic factors, there's the role of the circadian disruption. Um, and then there's this interesting data suggesting that low-dose THC in mice reversed age-related decline in cognitive performance. Um, and so, you know, could cannabis be useful for dementia or even symptoms of dementia? You know, we, we're in desperate need of, of answers for this patient population, for therapies, you know, even uh, just to help, um, you know, agitation, anxiety, restlessness, psychosis, anorexia in, in this patient population. And um, then, there's, then there are older women that uh, 30 years ago, you know, were put on uh, antipsychotic drugs, anti-anxiety drugs, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, you know, maybe when they were just really going through a, a midlife crisis and got medicated and now they've been medicated for decades and they want off of these medications. And I've been finding in my clinical practice cannabis to be a really great um, exit drug for those women. Well, that's great. They're lucky to have you as a resource, as am I. I really appreciate you spending the time to uh, talk with me and to share all of your expertise with my listeners. Thank you so much, Michelle. Well, thanks, Jamie. I enjoyed speaking with you. For more of my conversation with Michelle, check out part one, which focuses on the endocannabinoid system and immunity. Thanks again for listening to the Cannabis Consult. To listen to more episodes, please visit CannabisConsultPodcast.com. To learn more about me, Dr. Jamie Caroon, visit CenterForMedicalCannabis.com. Thanks for your time. Jersey, big up, big up, big up, big up.